0: turn to Ephesians 5. If you're new to the Bible, Ephesians toward the back in the New Testament. Uh, I'll read verses 1 through 17. We've spent the majority of our time in the last two lessons in verses 1 through 5. Today we're going to spend more time Verse 6 and following. So follow as I read Ephesians 5 1 through 17. This is the Word of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we're in a section of Ephesians that is uh, focusing on how we are to live as God's people in the world. In the first three some chapters, Paul focused solely on what God has done to save us by His grace in Christ. And the next section that we are now in uh, about you know, how we live in response to God's grace poured out. Note in verse 1 that all of this, our life in obedience to the Lord, all of it is said in the context of imitating God. Uh, now, as we said a few weeks ago, there are certain attributes of God that we cannot imitate. We'll never be all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereignly in control of everything in the universe. Uh, but there are other attributes that we are called to imitate, such as love, justice, mercy, forgiveness, and so on. We are God's saints, it says, his set apart ones, uh, set apart by God in order that we might imitate him in a life of holiness, showing the world something of what he is like. The more that we follow him according to the way he is prescribed, the more that we reflect him, the, the, the more that we show the world what he's like. We are also described as God's beloved children. And uh, having been brought into his family, he sends us out to represent the family name. So that by our lives, the world might know something of what uh, our Lord Jesus is like and what our Father in Heaven is like. It's striking to me that in our passage today, Paul, he can't get away from, or he doesn't want to get away from our identity in Christ. Again, the first half of the letter, before he ever got to our responsibilities in Christ, he developed our identity in Christ in great detail. Because our identity in Christ drives our activity. If we don't understand who we are, we'll never be able to live the life that He's called us to live. But even now, in chapter 5, as we're learning about more of our responsibilities and service to the Lord... Amidst all of these commands, Paul continues to remind us of our identity. Uh, verse 1, we are God's beloved children. Verse 3, we are God's saints. Verse 8, we are light in the Lord. And that's the one I want to focus a little bit more on today. Verse 8, it says, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Before Paul calls us to walk as children of light, he tells us that we are light. We walk as light because that's who we are. Uh, our identity leads our activity. Now, this isn't the only place in Scripture that talks like this. Can you think of somewhere else? 1 John. 1 John talks like this. Uh, I was thinking of Matthew 5, Jesus, and the Sermon on the Mount. Why don't you turn to Matthew 5? Back to the left a little bit. Um, The Sermon on the Mount is basically about living God's kingdom life in the world. So it's uh, similar to the section of Ephesians that we're in right now. And the sermon can be broken up like this. The first few verses through verse 6 are all about what it looks like uh, in real time for someone to become a part of God's kingdom. In other words, what does it look like in someone's life when when they become a Christian. In short, we get convicted and broken over our sin before God. We turn to Jesus for forgiveness and for His righteousness, which is our only hope. Uh, The next few verses, verses 7-12, through talk about the fact uh, that someone who has truly become a Christian will live like a Christian. Someone who is truly a part of God's kingdom lives out the kingdom life. And then the rest of the sermon... It's Matthew 5 through 7. The rest of the sermon is really about living out that life. But at the beginning of instructing us on how to live out the kingdom life, we have two identity statements, verse 13, Matthew 5 13, and Matthew 5 14. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. So where did Paul get this whole identity leads to activity thing? He got it from Jesus. Where did he get that we are light? Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to think for a second about how amazing that statement is. Um, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And elsewhere He said, I am the light of the world, right? Now, that doesn't mean that we are Jesus, but it does mean that He's done something so significant in us when we turn to Him in repentance and faith. He does something so significant that we are light like He is light. Um, Jesus is the light of the world. We are His body. We're connected to Him. And uh, we are the light of the world. Now, in verses 15 to 16, He commands us not to hide our light, uh, but to let it shine before others so that they will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. But before He talks about our activity, He talks about our identity. Uh, We are the light of the world. Therefore, shine your light. I often think about it this way. I think I made mention of it last week, but just to develop it a little bit further. Uh, so, whether non-believers realize it or not, they are in darkness. It's part of what this passage is saying, and they may have settled into the darkness and and may not be looking for the light. Uh, but I know that if I enter into their lives, the light shines in the darkness. How could it not? That's who He's made me to be. I am light in the Lord. So, think about a couple characteristics of light. Number one, light helps us see. And number two, light brings warmth. So, I know that when I enter into a non-believer's life, uh, the light may not be coming on in their hearts yet, but the light is at least on around them. Now, this may help expose things that they don't necessarily want to see, which may lead them to try to get away from the light. Maybe they don't want to be around, or don't want me around because of it. Or it may start to expose some things that help them to see their sin, which then opens a door for the gospel and, and for them to you know, repent of sin and believe in Jesus. But it's not just for non-believers. I also think about this in terms of Christians who have, uh, for whatever reason, maybe distanced themselves from the Lord and distanced themselves from His people. You know, it's hard to see in the dark. So, uh, someone might get reoriented if, if I enter into their lives, not because I'm so great, but because Jesus has made me light. And you know, if I enter in, the light's a little bit brighter than when they were just on their own in the darkness. It may cause them to feel warm in the light. It may cause them not to want to go back into the cold of the darkness. This reminded me of a story I was doing some premarital counseling a few years ago for a couple. They don't go to church here. They both grew up in church, but they were in a period in their life when they were not in church. And You know, it went well in four or five sessions or whatever. And then they were getting married, I think, the next week. And we were kind of saying our goodbyes or whatever. And they didn't go to... You know, anyway, uh, she just started weeping. And almost kind of uncontrollably, I mean, kind of that awkward moment where you're just going, uh, you know, I must have been offensive or something. But uh, she just was finally calmed down and was able to articulate. Like, she was just scared. She loved this time so much she was scared they were not going to do this after this little counseling session. She was scared we're just going to go back to life as we've known it we're not going to be in church, we're not going to be around Christians and it's cold in the dark, you know, and that she didn't say that but that's basically how I've interpreted it like, this has been good I mean, there's health here, there's light here there's warmth here, I can see better and I don't want to go back over there and, and that's always stuck with me so again, the first thing I wanted us to see here is our identity as light in the Lord. Uh, might this serve to motivate you as well to lovingly enter in with non-believers or with those who have distanced themselves from the Lord and His people? Or with someone who's in, a, in the darkness of suffering? You know, um, we don't often know what to do when people are suffering, but even just entering in to let them know that you love them and that you're praying for them, I mean, your presence may be the the, the light that helps give them the vision and the warmth that they needed at that time. Um, we are the light of the world. All right, so in light of our identity, we're called to, to live as light. Uh, at this point, we've talked a good bit about identity. Let's talk some more about our activity. I think we... Uh, see in our passage that I think the activity can be grouped into three headings. See, think, and take action. So, uh, number one in our passage today, God is calling us to see. Particularly, we're called to see sin in the light. Now, we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but uh, that's basically what's going on in verses 3-6 through if you look back at the passage. Uh, We're called to see sin in the light. For example, no matter what the world says about the various forms of sexual immorality, whether heterosexual, homosexual, (laughs) monosexual, or other, uh, God condemns sexual immorality. And we have to repent of our sexual immorality and turn to Christ. It says that there is no inheritance from the Lord for those who will not repent of sexual sin. Again, back to the old paradigm in Ephesians 4, we have to put off the old self. Uh, it's corrupt. Our sinful selves were, were corrupted because of our sinful desires and we put on the new self in Christ with that, where we find new desires that glorify God. So number one, God is calling us to see. Number two, God is calling us to think. Verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, you know, telling you uh, that sin doesn't matter. Verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Again, we have to think. Verse 15, look carefully at how you walk. Watch what you're doing. Uh, Think about what you're doing. Verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God is calling us to think. But not just to think, He's calling us to think in light of His Word. So how do we know what is deceptive and what is true? Well, God has given us the truth in His Word. How do we know what is pleasing to the Lord? He shows us what pleases Him in His Word. How do we understand what the will of the Lord is? He has revealed His will to us in His Word. God is calling us to think in light of His Word. Uh, If you've ever taken Dr. Young's systematic theology class, you know the way he begins is with a call to think. He says that, One of the greatest problems in the church today is simply that we do not think. And uh, he then presents some controversial biblical material throughout the class. But his main concern, at least he says, his main concern is not to get us to agree with them, but it's to get us to think in light of the Scriptures. Um, I think we need what Al Mohler calls convictional intelligence. And what he means by that is that we would have deep-rooted convictions in the Word of God that drive us to passionate, convicted, self-sacrificial service to the Lord. But you don't get convictional intelligence without thinking deeply and consistently in light of the Word. Um, What we want is that the Word of God might be the lens through which we view the world in every area of life, in our doctrine and in our practice in the way that we think about everything, whether our view of the atonement or singleness, whether divine providence and world missions or our marriage and family and business and personal belongings and retirement and economics, politics, abortion, adoption, immigration, whatever the issue, that that the Scriptures would be the lens through which we view everything. So number one, God is calling us to see in the light of His Word. Number two, He's calling us to think in light of the truth of His Word. And number three, God is calling us to take action. So in verse 17, we're called to understand what the will of the Lord is. And certainly a part of this is that we have to think. But here's the thing about biblical understanding. It shows up in our walk. Uh, place I always go back to for this, Job 28.28 says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. How do you know if you truly understand? Well, if you truly understand, it shows up in life. And you take action. So we try to think in light of God's Word so that we might act in following Him. Uh, In the first few verses of our passage, we're called to repent of various sins, taking action. In verse 7, we're called not to become partners with the sons of disobedience. Verse 11, not to take part in the unfruitful works of darkness, rather to expose them. Again, standing firm, taking action. Uh, Kind of an aside, or just to illustrate that little point, an excellent current example, I think, of uh, taking action to expose the works of darkness is the guy named David Delighton who founded the Center for Medical Progress and did this undercover sting operation to create these videos about Planned Parenthood uh, just to show what's really going on there for all the world to see and expose the evils of Planned Parenthood. If you haven't seen those videos, they're really hard to watch, but uh, I really wish you would. It's just, it's worth looking into. Uh, Again, verse 15, walking in wisdom. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Taking action, following the Lord. So in our passage today, we're called to see sin in light of the Word. We're called to think in light of the Word. And here again in 15, how do we know the path of wisdom so that we can walk in it if not from God's Word? And then we're called to take action in following Him. Um, I want to spend some time thinking about verse 16. Verse 16. Because I think that all these things, seeing, thinking, taking action, I think they all come to a head in verse 16. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Uh, This is a call to discipline. It reminds me of what John Piper calls the wartime lifestyle. Um, And basically his point is, you live differently at peacetime than you do at wartime. In peacetime, you relax your defenses, and at wartime, you're always on guard. Uh, basically, it's wartime until Jesus returns. So I've recently been working through Proverbs just in my morning devotions, and I've been struck by how much it talks about the sins of uh, the sloth or sluggard. I knew that one of the areas in Proverbs that it talks about a lot is the area of sexual sin. Um but right up there with that is this sin of sloth or being a sluggard. By definition, I think, someone who doesn't make the best use of the time. Always feeling the need for more rest and more relaxation or as opposed to discipline and hard work. That's kind of the way Proverbs pits it against each other. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. This leads us into the area of spiritual discipline. Um, I think we could talk about this in other areas, for example, there are a lot of books out there about just being more effective and you know time management that sort of thing in your day to day work. How many of you have read uh, Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Not many, but uh, anyway, that's a bestseller, and uh, you know I think that his whole aim is making the best use of the time. Uh, I recommend a book called What's Best Next. It's by a guy named Matt Perman. Um, Just because it's the same type book and he tries to capture it all in the context of our relationship with the Lord and it's a good book. Um, I want us to make the best use of the time in our work, in whatever work God has called us to. I think God wants us to do that. But I also think spiritual discipline undergirds all of that. Um, if we grow lazy in our spiritual disciplines, we're a whole lot more likely to grow lazy in other areas of our calling, whether home, work, wherever. So again, uh, how are we going to see and think and take action according to the principles of God's word at home or at work or wherever? If not, if we're not all the time in God's word, um, I finished up. I just finished a class last week in church history where we were looking at the first 1,500 years of church history. And uh, there are a lot of interesting characters that I didn't know a whole lot about. But particularly interesting to me were the monks. Uh, In fact, I think many of the monks provide a great example to us in regard to making the best use of the time. That's really what they were after. Now, you might be thinking, seriously, monk, like... uh, I'm pretty busy, what do they do, like sit around and hum and rub their fingers together and that sort of thing all the time? Uh, no, they were, I mean, you may not know that, uh, I didn't know, that monks, at least during that time, were the greatest missionaries that we had. There was, for instance, St. Patrick, which I don't know what he thought about green beer, but he was like a super impactful missionary to Ireland, or St. Fr- uh, Francis, who I think it's unfortunate he's probably most remembered for a quote that I don't think is very good. He said, preach the gospel if necessary use words. I don't think you can preach the gospel without words. But the irony is that St. Francis was always preaching the gospel. Uh, He was born into a wealthy family, but he made a decision to kind of leave home and I'm going to live in poverty, serving the poor. And he had a band of followers that followed him around, and they travel around these cities, they kind of stay outside the city where they were, you know, committed to their life of devotion and community. Uh, But then they would head into the city all the time, preach the gospel, serve, and that sort of thing. Which sounds like someone else I know. It's kind of the way Jesus lived his life. But my favorite was John Chrysostom. Uh, He was also born into a well-to-do family. He was very well educated, but he decided that he would go live as a monk. So for six years he lived as a monk. For four of those he lived in a community for two, he lived completely alone in a cave where they think he memorized the majority of the Bible, which is just hard to fathom. But he then came back to the city and was in church leadership in major cities Antioch and Constantinople. Constantinople at the time was second, probably, only to Rome. Um, So the interesting thing about Chrysostom in regard to our lesson today is he did not cease to see himself as a monk when he came back to live in the city. In fact, his whole experience as a monk really shaped the way that he lived in the city. And he was always pressing on his congregation for the need for that kind of monastic-type devotion, whether you're single like him or whether you're a man or woman with a family, full-time work, and, you know, the whole lot. Um, He believed that we could live a monastic life in the world. And we can. I mean, the monks, really, what made you a monk? I mean, the things they were known for, um, community, but Bible study, Bible meditation, fasting and prayer, silence, solitude, reflection, uh, and hard work. I mean, they were extremely hard workers. They were committed to making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And here we're called to do the same. So uh, we talked about spiritual discipline a couple months ago. And uh, I recommended at that time that we make a plan in our personal devotional lives. Um, And if you haven't done that, I recommend it again. You know all the rhythms of your life better than I do. Uh, I don't know what season of life you're currently in. But all I can tell you is this, without spiritual discipline, and I can just tell you personally, these things don't come naturally to me. Maybe some of you are more type A, regimented, get your list, personally devoted, disciplined people. I, wherever that is on the spectrum, I'm the complete other end. Okay, so, But I don't think it matters. I mean, regardless, I think we're all called, you know, discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Um, how are we going to see and think and take action in light of God's Word if we're not in God's Word? How are we going to go, grow deeper and more devoted in our personal relationship with the Lord if we're not taking time just to consider the things that He said to us and and to spend time in prayer communicating with Him? Um, If you want some help getting started in that vein, you're like, I don't know much about the spiritual discipline thing. There's a couple books on spiritual discipline at the uh, book nook up there. But, you know, in order to be serious about building a life, making the best use of the time, a disciplined uh, life, there are just going to be some things that we have to get rid of in favor of other things, not because they're necessarily evil or wrong, but just because they suck away time. And they're not the best use of the time when there would be a better use in terms of our devotion to the Lord. Um, for me personally, I can tell you this. If I want to have any consistency at all, it really starts even before kind of the ins and outs of Bible study. It starts with I got to wake up at the same time every day, regardless of what happened the night before. And i got to be trying to crack my Bible at the same time every day because if we leave it to the the ins and outs of life, particularly in the season that many of us are in, it's just inconsistent at best. Um, I'll close with an illustration, and then I want to hear from you. The illustration is from the Alabama quarterback yesterday. Uh, He said, after the game, the reporter asked Coker, if he was ready for the bye week, and he said, I'm ready for whatever the schedule says. So why has Alabama been so good for so long? Well, for one, I think they have a lot of talent. But I really think it's because they bought into the structure. They, they bought into the system, and they're committed to it. And, you know, maybe he's just putting on a face, but I think that's really the way they are. They're more disciplined than any other team. Uh, Now, they're driven by a taskmaster. You know, we're loved by our Father in heaven. Uh, At the same time, there's some similarities there in terms of making the best use of the time. So let's pray. Our Father, we do uh, glory in the difference between a taskmaster and You, our loving Father. Lord, You have... uh, Sent your Son to die for our sins. Uh, You count none of our sins against us. You have forgiven us and adopted us, and you love us with an everlasting love. Lord, we know that our discipline is not a matter of trying to work our way to you, but simply trying to steward the life that you've blessed us with. And so, wherever we can. make better use of our time in order to make the best use of the time would you bring your holy spirit to bring conviction and uh, just clarity Uh, lord help us to make the changes that we need help us to thrive in uh, these times of devotion with you we thank you for times such as these which um, are, are sort of pillars in our devotional life and Thank you for your Word, uh, which is living and active. We we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, we have time for questions or thoughts. Anyone? Somebody's dying to say something. Um, one thing I would say too and I just I think this was a part of what I was praying but the uh, um, something that's helped me tremendously I think one of the things that helps me flame out more than anything in terms of spiritual discipline is thinking it's all about me as an individual and not realizing that God has set this in the context of a community and so uh, the most important things, I think, to establishing priorities in a life of discipline to glorify God, to, um, you know, just grow into maturity in Him, is think corporately first before you think individually. I mean, that's, you know, the importance of corporate worship and um, just as a priority in terms of he's, this is where He communicates His grace to us and His Word to us all the time, regularly. And I think our individual devotional lives can be built out of that. So, anyway. Clint.
1: I would admit, uh, just like you, that um, it is not natural for me to discipline uh, to study, the word, or to apply it. But I have found, um, as I've uh, grown hopefully older and wiser, um, that when I cause myself to do discipline things that I do not want to do. So there's transparency. I do, not, I do not wish to get up and do things that I do not want to do. And I find myself more capable of doing them. And I'm older, so I'm not as strong and don't have as much energy as before and probably not as smart as I once was. But the discipline helps me in the times when um, I'm not as spiritually in tune that the distance between the peak and the trough yeah, uh, is much smaller uh, because of the discipline life. I mean, for right now, I'm just in a, a spot where I'm not as intent. Uh, I, I feel that I've been in a better high. You know, I've been gone. We haven't, haven't been on Tuesday morning, so I feel the longing for that. Um, but I, I know compared to other times in my life, I wouldn't have thought as much about when I'm down below. But, <laughs> but I'm closer to the better side because of discipline.
0: I mean, I would just piggyback on that and say, I guess to my shame, I mean, it's just the reality of where I'm at, but I would say the majority of the time, I'm not like giddy and longing for that time. But I'm always, every time, thankful for that time after that time. Um, and, And then it feeds... Everything that we're thinking and doing and praying throughout the day, and so if we're not feeding that in the Word and in prayer, we're feeding that in the flesh. It's getting fed, you know. Uh, But I just to—I told Tiffany. Maybe I told you guys this. I can't remember. But I told Tiffany recently. It was after I spent a time in the Psalms for a few months, and uh, I'm going to say more about that in a second. But um, I told her this is—I have enjoyed this for the first time in my Christian life, I was, like, longing to wake up and be in the Word. But that's... Seriously, that was the first time in... I've been a Christian for nine years. So, I mean, I don't know. That's just reality. And, you know, but it was just... But I can see the value in all of those times even when I didn't want to be there because God meets you there regardless. And... Um, there are times when you have aha moments. There are lots of times when you just close up. Thank you, Lord, for Your Word. Help me to better understand and uh, move on. But then I can also tell you, I can't, I, or I can't even tell you how often something that I read that morning that I didn't even it didn't even register with me then, but later in the day someone will say something. that's like I just read about that this morning. Anyway. Um, Discipline. We, we understand the value of discipline everywhere else in our life. We get nervous about it in the Christian life. And it just it works the same everywhere else. We do what we don't want to do because we have a, an end goal that we desire. And um, about the Psalms. If you don't know where to start and you're like, yep, yeah, I'm with you. My discipline, not good. I'm going to do something different. Uh, the Psalms, for me... All I did was I took one psalm a day. They're not that long. If they're long, I took less. I was just in a period too where I just didn't have that much attention, focus, energy, and just like something short and sweet would be best. You know, One psalm a day. I read it twice to try to get my bearings. And the third time through, I used it as a guide for prayer. And that's really what the psalms are for. um, Prayer and worship. And easily probably the richest time in my uh, personal devotion that I've ever had. And so, can't say that's going to be the same for you, but I would say that's a, there's a plan, that's a decent idea if you don't have one uh, in the Psalms. Anyone else? On another note, uh, there are still, I think, some of these back there. If you didn't get one, um, it's a children's book and basically just telling the big picture narrative of the Bible. Um, if you don't have kids or uh, you, whatever, I mean, this is still good. And I'm telling you, I think one of the things that, you know, maybe you didn't grow up in Bible drill and maybe you don't know the Bible like you wish you did and you're like, how am I ever going to catch up? I mean, I think one of the most helpful things is just taking something as simple as this, and getting the big picture narrative. Uh, it really helps you to find your bearings, kind of wherever you are, in the Bible. So even if you don't have kids, you're welcome to it. If we run out, please let me know. There's more where that came from. Okay. I'll say um, I randomly have
1: a copy of that, and it is so good. Kind of one of those I kind of wanted to buy it for all my friends' kids. Yeah. Know, so it's there, but it's oh, well. Really, really good.
0: So- Excellent. Excellent. Good. Well, there you have it. Pick one up. And if you run out, let me know, okay? All right, we're done.